Sick of the fatigue and fog, fed up with the unpredictable flares, hangry from the super restrictive diets. Hello, and welcome to the Crunchy Allergist Podcast, a podcast empowering those who, like me, appreciate both a naturally-minded and scientifically-grounded approach to health and healing. Hi, I'm your host, Dr. Kara Wada, quadruple board-certified pediatric and adult allergy immunology and lifestyle medicine physician, Sjogren's patient, and life coach. My recipe for success combines anti-inflammatory lifestyle, trusting therapeutic relationships, modern medicine, and mindset to harness our body's ability to heal. Now, although I might be a physician, I'm not your physician, and this podcast is for educational purposes only. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today um, on today's episode of the Crunchy Allergist Podcast. We have Dr. Rani Bannock. She is a neuro-ophthalmologist, and we're going to talk what about all about what that is. She is based in New York City at Mount Sinai and has an awesome Instagram that we were going to, we're definitely going to link to along with all of her other contact information. But um, I think we'll have lots to share that will be a wealth of information for everyone listening. So thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Oh, and thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to our chat. Yeah. Okay. So one thing that I was always confused about until I was in the medical field was what, what are the different types of eye professional, eye healthcare professionals? There's optometrists, ophthalmologists, and then what you are, which is a neuro-ophthalmologist. Can you explain a little bit to our listeners kind of what, what are the differences? Sure. Well, there are actually three O's in the world of eye care. So there's ophthalmologist, there's an optometrist, and there's optician. So I'll start with ophthalmologist. Um, So an ophthalmologist is a medical doctor. So an ophthalmologist has gone to medical school. So four years of undergraduate uh, education, then four years of medical school, and then has done an internship and then a residency in ophthalmology. So that's another four years, the total of 12 years after high school. And then some people go on to do a fellowship, which is what I did in neuro-ophthalmology. And we can talk more about that. Um, An optometrist has gone, uh, has done an undergraduate degree and then does optometry school. Um, And so um, during that time, they learn a lot about uh, eye diseases. Um, They um, can diagnose certain things and depending on the state that they're in, they can prescribe medications and they obviously they do contacts, glasses, et cetera. Um, uh, and then an optician is someone who, uh, can take the glasses prescription and then make the glasses. So they're the ones who actually like fit the frames and make sure that it's fitting correctly. And it's, you know, that you're able to see properly through them. So, so they actually transcribe that prescription into glasses. So again, those are the three O's and, um, as an ophthalmologist, you know, I, I, um, I'm fortunate to be trained in, you know, the medical and surgical aspects of ophthalmology, but I really felt like during my residency, I wanted to learn more about the brain and the brain's connection to the eyes, because I'd always also been interested in neurology. So I was kind of, you know, in, in medical school, I was deciding between ophthalmology and neurology. So doing a fellowship in neuro-ophthalmology really helped me kind of bring those two things together. And so, um, yeah, I deal with a lot of um, vision problems that come from brain issues, like, for example, uh, autoimmune conditions like multiple sclerosis can have vision loss, like optic neuritis, or uh, pe- people who've had brain tumors, brain strokes can have vision loss. 
Uh, migraine is a big one. I deal with a lot of migraine. So as a neuro-ophthalmologist, I help take care of all of that, you know, when the eyes are involved, when there's neurologic issues. Um, so that was an extra one year of training. Very cool. And I think, you know, something that I have kind of forgotten from years ago during medical school, you know, that comes back um, from time to time is just that the eye like is directly connected to the brain. <laughs> like, yes. um, is one you of our, wouldn't have said it better. I mean, yeah. it, it's the direct extension of the brain. So it's really a part of the nervous system. It's part of the central nervous system and people don't realize that. So, um, yeah. And, yeah, um, even just thinking back to that first year of medical school, when we learn all the cranial nerves, which are for those who have, um, are not in the medical field, they are these very specialized kind of nerves that help, us to be able to see and smell and move our eyes in various directions, move our, our jaws and taste. Um, but a lot of them all focus up in this eye area. So really can see some of those, um, if there's damage to any of those pretty easily through the examinations, I'm sure you're doing kind of in the office and with patients. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there, there are 12 cranial nerves and six of those 12, um, have to do with vision or the, our eyes or our eye socket. So uh, it's, it's really, it's, it's great to go through the anatomy. It's like solving a puzzle and you're taking the pieces of the puzzle, putting it together to come up with the diagnosis. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's um, I would imagine it's kind of the Sherlock Holmes aspect of your field. <laughs> it is actually whenever other eye doctors don't know what's going on with their patient, like let's say they've had some unusual symptoms and they've had a huge workup, all the tests come up negative. They say, okay, send the patient to the neuro-ophthalmologist and they'll figure it out. So we're kind of like the black box of ophthalmology and, and yes, and optometry, because when people can't figure out what's going on, the patient gets sent to us. <laughs> That's so funny because that I think we feel like an allergy immunology and probably rheumatology as well, that we are the black box of internal medicine. <laughs> Yes, I'm not I sure. Definitely you know, see that. Yeah, out. definitely see that. Mm -hmm. Um, and we were talking just a little bit before we hit record that there's a real need for neuro ophthalmologists in the country. It sounds like. Yeah, there's. Um, you know, it's a relatively small field, and I think in the U.S. there's probably less than 300 fellowship trained neuro ophthalmologists for the entire country, and very few the world also. And it's estimated that for every 1.2 million in the population, we should have one neuro-ophthalmologist. So we're significantly low in that respect. You know, when you think about the population of the U.S., there's just not enough of us. And um, it's challenging because um, it's a field that, um, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily gravitate towards like people who do ophthalmology, they might want to specialize. So they end up going into a surgical specialty like retina or, or glaucoma or cornea. Uh, so again, it's, it's, you can't, you can definitely do surgery as a neuro-ophthalmologist. Like I do surgery, uh, but very few neuro-ophthalmologists do surgery. So I think when people train, they want to kind of keep the surgical aspect more. So they're less inclined to go into neuro-ophthalmology, but it's a wonderful field. It's very rewarding. Uh, get the most fascinating of patients. So it's, it's very, um, it's always intellectually challenging. Awesome. Um, so one of the things that um, I know you post pretty um, frequently about and had mentioned kind of seeing a lot are patients who have headaches and migraines. Um, what, um, can you kind of share a little bit about how those come together and yeah, um, I see a lot of migraine and headache. I would say at least 50% of my patients have some kind of a headache syndrome or facial pain syndrome or 
eye pain syndrome. And so, um, so I've, and I myself have, have suffered from migraines. So I, I kind of understand what they go through and it, I think it gives me a unique perspective to care for them because I, I'm a migraine sufferer myself. And, and, um, so, uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but a migraine is a very unique neurologic syndrome. It's not just a headache. Like some people think, oh, you have a migraine, just take like a Tylenol and it'll go away. But it's not like that because it, it really, um, it has, we don't fully understand it, but it really is a sensory disturbance disorder and all the senses can go on high alert. For example, uh, people can be very sensitive to loud sounds, smells. Um, lights, bright lights, uh, even touch. There's something called allodynia, where even like a light touch can really irritate someone who, have, who has migraine. And the types of headaches people with migraine get are not like your regular headaches. I mean, they can last anywhere from four hours to days to weeks to even months. Like there was a point when people can have chronic migraine and I had chronic migraine. There was a point when my migraines, I had migraines every day for two years. I mean, that was just a horrible time. So, um, it's definitely not your regular headache. And many people can get other types of symptoms also. Like for example, they can get a lot of um, gastrointestinal symptoms mm -hmm. like nausea, vomiting, constipation, loose stools. And they may not really understand like what's going on. And a lot of it is actually linked to migraine. So um, the vagus nerve, which is one of those cranial nerves yeah. we were just talking about, connects the brain to the gut. And so through the gut, there's a lot of um, crosstalk between um, what's going on in our digestive system and our brain. So uh, the vagus nerve is definitely involved in migraine. It's really, it's just fascinating. Like, so I just had one of those, like, you know, like the emoji with the head exploding moments, because I've always kind of um, said privately um, that I've noticed when my IBS symptoms are flaring up, that's when I will tend to have more um, headache issues. And I didn't quite I like hypothesized like that, you know, they were related, but didn't quite. So that like sheds a whole new light. And I remember as getting migraines as a, a young teen, after just starting my periods, I would end up throwing up pretty often. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, not unusual. And actually when, um, even children can get migraines and usually when children get migraines, they don't actually get a headache. They get the GI issues, they get the nausea and then they vomit and then they feel better. So there's definitely some crosstalk there probably through the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, even though migraine has been so well researched and studied, we still really don't know what's happening. Like we can hypothesize about what's happening. We still don't know exactly like what one's triggers are because there's so many triggers. Like for example, you were mentioning hormones, yeah. um, hormones, hor changes in hormones are a trigger. Foods can be triggers. Lifestyle choices can be triggers like lack of sleep, dehydration. Um, and then there's some more, more, you know, serious triggers that can happen as well. So just so much about migraine and every individual is unique. So it's really a matter of being a, de a detective and figuring out like, what are your uh, particular triggers or how, how should you manage your migraines? Because no, no two people are the same in terms of how to manage their, their symptoms. Do you have any kind of quick tips or things that would be helpful for someone who's dealing with headaches to think about as they're preparing for a visit with, uh, neurologist or neuro-ophthalmologist or even their primary care doctor? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the mo I think the most important thing before you go see a doctor is to keep a headache diary, mm -hmm. uh, a diary of your symptoms. So I shouldn't say headache diary, like more like migraine diary. And um, basically you record for, you know, a few weeks or maybe even a full month, like how many times a month do you get a headache? And what are those headaches like? And what may the triggers be like? 
this is also really interesting. So a lot of people who have migraine because they're super sensitive to all kinds of stimuli, they're very sensitive to changes in weather, like barometric pressure changes. And um, you know, maybe as an allergist and immunologist, you may have some insights on this also, but definitely the weather affects our, our health and, um, and people can sense like, I know when there's a storm coming on, I will be more inclined to have a migraine. So it's really important to track your symptoms. And there's a great app, actually, you can download for free. It's called Migraine Buddy. And you can download it to your phone and keep track of like what you're eating, uh, what, you know, how much sleep you're getting, what the weather's like, what the temperature's like, what the humidity's like. And that way you can really figure out like, what are your specific triggers? And that way, that's like the first step to really um, getting control of them is to figure out like, okay, why is this happening to me? What, what do I have in my control that I can change? So, so consider doing that before you see your doctor. That's super helpful. And, um, something that I talk about with patients with, uh, in other aspects of care too, um, is having kind of that, that journaling process can be really um, beneficial. It's nice to always know some of the, the tech tools that are out there now too, and take advantage of, these phones that we have on our side all the time. Yes. Um, uh-huh. I know um, at least um, you're pretty interested as well in how lifestyle can um, be really helpful in um, in our health. Um, do you have particular things that you like to suggest to patients um, to help in with their everyday routines that are you know beneficial for their eye health? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I actually, I became so interested in this topic about how our nutrition and lifestyle affects our health that I actually got certification in it. So now I'm dual certified in functional medicine and integrative medicine as well, in addition to like traditional ophthalmology. So I just got that last year. I'm so super excited about it. Very it was a long process, but worth it. So worth it. So um, so I I know, you know, a lot of you know um, approaches. Uh, can be used for, for overall health, but nutrition is really so like the foundation of our health. And, and, you know, there's the saying that food is medicine. It dates back to, even though people attribute it to Hippocrates, it actually dates back to even before Hippocrates, like (laughs) millennia before him, like ancient Mesopotamians and Chinese and Indian uh, cultures used food as medicine. So if you eat the right, the, the bottom line is if you eat the right types of foods that will provide provide your body with the nutrients it needs to stay healthy, to support your immune system, to support your hormonal health, um, to decrease your stress, to be anti-inflammatory, then you're less likely to get some of these um, chronic conditions um, and potentially even autoimmune conditions. And also if if you eat other foods that are pro-inflammatory, then you're more likely to get certain uh, health issues down the road. And this is not something that happens overnight. This is cumulative. Like it's not, you know, just like, oh, if you have like a, a McDonald's meal and the next day, you're going to develop this problem. No, it's not like that. It's, it's like having a habit of eating in a particular way that may predispose you to certain health issues. So in terms of eye health, um, the eyes are just such specialized organs. They, um, they require a lot of energy. Like it's, it's probably one of the most metabolically active next to the brain. The eye is the most metabolically active organ in our entire body. It's constantly processing light energy. So you really have to support your mitochondria. And if you think back to like, uh, you know, biology class or mitochondria are the little energy powerhouses in all of our cells that provide us energy. So um, there are certain foods that I recommend to promote mitochondrial health, to give you those nutrients you need, like all the B vitamins, you need antioxidants, um, you need certain minerals, certain co 
factors to promote your mitochondrial health. So that's usually what I recommend as an overall approach to eye health is to eat those types of foods. And the other just general tip I'll give you in terms of nutrition is that, you know, a lot of people ask me, oh, should I be eating carrots? You know, if I eat carrots, <laughs> um, will I have 20-20 vision if, if I eat carrots? Is that going to fix my eyesight? The answer is yes, carrots are important and you do need those <laughs> carrots for vitamin A, which is necessary for your retina to not have night blindness and help with dry eye. But there's so many other nutrients our eyes need. So don't just eat carrots. You have to have like a whole range of different colors and and, and um, just different types of foods in your diet. Most of them are plants. So all different types of colorful uh, fruits and veggies, but also you need to have, or you should have some good sources of omega-3s. Um, for example, certain fish like salmon is a great source of omega-3. Uh, eggs are also great for healthy fats, um, avocados. So there's just, you know, when you think about eye health, it's not just one thing. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Um, Quite pun intended, but you yeah. want to, you want to really have the whole spectrum and eat lots of colors and that will provide your eyes with what you need. I'm going to play that back for my girls because they love carrots. Um, and they actually have been known to say at dinner, um, because I wear, I'm the only one in the house that wears glasses, mom, you need to eat more carrots. And, um, <laughs> so I will share that with them. They're only, um, six and three and a half. So, uh, they still well, they're learning good learn. habits, definitely. <laughs> But but, also, so one thing I'll, I'll just tell you in terms of like, especially with kids, one great tip you can tell them is eat the rainbow. Yeah. So you want to have like the whole rainbow of colors in your, in your diet throughout the week, not all at once, but throughout the week. So I always tell my, my patients who are parents, like teach your kids to have a different color with every meal. And so like, for example, most of us eat seven, uh, sorry, uh, three meals a day, seven days a week, so that's 21 meals a week, have 21 different colors in your diet. And that way you'll be giving your body and your eyes with what they really need in terms of nutrients. That's super fun. The other thing that we'll do on the weekends is I'll make like a snack tray essentially with like a lot of different cut up veggies. And then all the leftovers are before dinner snacks for the week. Um, oh, that's so a great idea. Some things to like snack on um, that aren't just pretzels and goldfish. <laughs> Those make their way into. <laughs> <laughs> to help out. Um, um, yes, you can get rainbow goldfish, but that's not the type of not, rainbow not quite, we're talking about. Quite full of all those different antioxidants, right? <laughs> um, one of the other things that's really common and I see kind of both in my practice, but also personally, um, is this interplay of like dry eye and allergic eye disease. Um, do you have kind of any like quick tips or um, suggestions for people who may be dealing with kind of those itchy, irritated or gritty eye symptoms? Yeah, they, they definitely do go hand in hand. I mean, absolutely. Um, many people have dry eye. And then on top of that, especially with seasonal allergies, many people have eye allergy symptoms. So dry eye symptoms can be redness, burning, uh, like a gritty sensation, like there's sand or pebbles in your eye. Um, and sometimes people tear. So people say, Oh, well, why, why do you, why do you say I have dry eye? Because I'm tearing all the time. And the reason is actually because the surface of your eye, the cornea gets dry and then the tear glands kick in. they overproduce tears in response to the dryness. So it's actually like a side effect of the dryness that you're tearing. So if you can stop the dryness, you can stop the tearing. That's one thing. And then in terms of allergy type symptoms, yes, you can get a lot of the same similar types of symptoms, but also the itching and then discharge is very common with allergy. Um, and usually the type of discharge is, it can be clear, it could be watery, it may be mucousy, like mucous trans. That's a very classic symptom of ocular allergy. 
allergy. And there's so many things that can cause allergy, as you, you must know. Um, of course, environmental, you know, um, triggers, but even, um, even triggers within the home, like, uh, you know, just uh, dust and pet dander and all kinds of things, mites. Um, so many things can trigger allergy type symptoms. And there is definitely overlap also in the types of ways you can treat both dry eye and ocular allergy. Um, the mainstay is drops. And um, for dry eye, you obviously want to lubricate uh, and treat the underlying cause of dry. And we can talk a little bit more about that. For allergy, you want to um, uh, calm down the allergic response. So there's very specific types of drops that can be used to calm that down. And then also just for comfort, like cool compresses are, are great. Um, yeah, so many different things people can do. Yeah. And I think the one thing that at least I was taught and please correct me if I'm wrong, but is to avoid the eye drops that have like the, the take away the redness, um, because those can kind of essentially make, make for more problems. Yeah. So, um, I'll, I'll say a brand name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of people will say, Oh, my eyes look horrible. I need to get this red out. So they use the visine and it works yeah. because it constricts the blood vessels. But what happens is if you use it too often, your body gets used to that. And then as soon as you stop using it, it rebounds and you get this horrible, yeah, uh, worsening of your redness and your symptoms. So I usually tell my patients, stay away from those types of drops that have the constriction, like the vasoconstrictors in them. Mm -hmm. um, we have the same problem with Efren. I'll name drop on that one. <laughs> the same physiology, but in the nose that you can have that rebound. Yeah. So just be careful. I mean, it's okay to use maybe once in a while. Like if you have like some event that you're going to, yeah. or you're taking photos or something like that, but don't, please don't use them regularly. That's not a good thing. Um, the other thing that I will steer patients and people away from are fragrance type things too. Um, it can be so irritating as you were talking kind of about air quality. And, um, I had a patient yesterday who, um, he was not happy with his wife's use of like the plugins. Um, and, um, sure enough, it seemed like that was based on the story and the testing that that was contributing to his symptoms. And he's like, can I get that in writing? I was like, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so many household things can trigger allergy type symptoms. Um, even detergents, like yes. you really have to kind of think about like, okay, what may, may my body be exposed to that? it doesn't like. And so one by one, you can eliminate all the possible triggers and figure out what it is. It's, it's again, being a detective in your own home to try to figure out, or maybe you're, you know, a lot of people, a lot of women, mainly women wear eye makeup. Yes. And sometimes that can be a trigger for ocular allergy. And what I sometimes tell them to do, and I know they don't like to do this is to take a holiday from their makeup. Like don't wear mascara for like a week or two and see what happens. And then when you do go back to wearing it, get a fresh you know, to uh, supply a bottle or whatever it is, get, get something fresh because whatever you were using before, first of all, you should probably throw it away like every three months because it collects bacteria in it. And then that can also be irritating to your eyes and you don't want to get infections, et cetera. But um, just start fresh or maybe even just change your brand and see if that works. Uh, lots of things you can consider trying uh, for ocular allergy. And um, one resource that may be out there, the folks may not be aware of. So there's kind of two types of allergy testing, the type that allergists do with the little scratch tests that look for like pollens and dust and pets. But then there's also something called patch testing that can be helpful for some of those um, other preservatives and um, ingredients that may be in eye drops or um, 
lotions and other things that we wear on us um, that can be problematic. And that testing is sometimes done by allergists and sometimes done by dermatologists. Um, but just to kind of realize that there are kind of different types and that might be helpful. That's so good to know. I'm so thank you for sharing that because now I know like when I send my patients off for, to figure out what it is, you know, their systemic issue that they can ask for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's the one thing that's a little frustrating is patch testing is not quite (laughs) as good at like picking up the reactions as like scratch testing is just in its like ability as a modality, but it's, it's what we have. So, <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned earlier about uh, preservatives. So, you know, when you are choosing eye drops, sometimes it's best to get preservative free. Uh, they're, they're a little bit more expensive, but they come in like little single use vials. So that way you just like tear it off. You use it during the day and you throw it out and that way it doesn't get contaminated. It doesn't, you know, and then there's a particular preservative in a lot of eye drops called BAK. K benzalconium chloride, I believe that's how you say it. Um, and so that is in many people that they just can't tolerate that. They definitely develop a response to that. So look, I know, check the ingredients on your eye drops, um, and just be a little bit more, you know, uh, aware of what is in the eye drop that could also be propagating your symptoms. That ingredient is in some nose sprays too. And it's like, ah, get out of there. <laughs> I know they need preservatives sometimes to keep them um, shelf stable and everything, but it is frustrating, um, especially for those that are more sensitive to things in their environment. Do you have, um, any other tips or tricks or things that you like to share with the world? Um, or maybe, wow, that's such a- <laughs> maybe any other like myths or misperceptions that come up, um, in your field that people say, and you're like, ah, actually that's not the case. <laughs> Um, there are so many myths actually about eye health, um, you know, things like sitting too close to the TV is going to damage your eyes. Um, no, <laughs> uh, that's, that doesn't happen. Um, you know, your eye may be changed, especially young people, their eye may be changing. It may be growing. So they may be developing something like myopia, but sitting too close to the TV is not going to make that worse necessarily. That's a process that's happening. And a lot of people also feel like, you know, as they get older, their eyesight gets worse. Mm -hmm. Um, That does happen in certain respects, but a lot of that worsening is Mm -hmm. age related in terms of something we call presbyopia, which is basically not being able to read up close when we get to a certain age. And most people it happens happens in their forties. Some people, it happens in their fifties, some people, people in their late thirties, but basically like, when you're trying to read something and then you kind of have to like hold it out here because it's just not clear anymore. So that's presbyopia. And that's like a natural part of, I don't want to say the aging process, but it's a natural change that happens in the lens when the lens becomes less flexible and just can't focus as well up close. So a lot of people come to me in that age group saying, Oh my goodness, my vision's getting worse. I just can't see anymore. And the truth is they just need reading glasses. Um, it's something correctable. So a lot of the things people think, oh, my eyesight's really going downhill after 40, it it may have changed, but it's correctable. That's the most important thing to keep in mind is that you can fix it. Um, and then a lot of the other changes that happen as people get older or the eye diseases that older people may get into their 60s, 70s, 80s, for example, like cataracts or glaucoma or macular degeneration, a lot of that can be prevented using proper nutrition. This is so important. This is what people just don't realize is that eye health is like something you need to start early, like 
start it when you're young. So you develop good habits through your young adult life into your later years to prevent some of these diseases. So I'm actually, um, I'm just about done with my first book, which is best foods for eye health A to Z. And in that book, I go through like everything that you need or different foods that will give you the nutrients you need. So not just carrots, but all the other things you need to keep your eyes healthy as we all are getting older. So, um, so hopefully that book will be coming out soon. Oh, awesome. I can't wait. I love learning. Well, first of all, I love food in general. I love cooking and all those things, but factoring in the science and how we can like use health food to help improve our health is so much fun to learn about. So I look forward to reading. Oh yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, where can people find you and follow you and kind of get updates about your book or continue to learn from you? Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm my website is probably a good place, but I'm also on social media. Um, Instagram is, is probably my biggest platform. Um, I'm on there pretty often. So I'm at dr.ronnie Bannock. And then I'm also on Facebook. So if any of you are on Facebook, I have two different Facebook, actually three different Facebook groups. One is called Envision Health. So I talk about just general eye health in that group and I give lots of tips. The other group is Ion Migraine. So if you suffer from migraines or if you know someone who suffers from migraines, I have a separate group for those people. And I give, again, give a lot of tips, like natural tips on how to prevent migraine and manage it. And then I have a new group on macular degeneration. So if anyone's interested in macular degeneration, I have a group um, focusing on diet and lifestyle for macular degeneration. So, uh, so those are some ways to find me. And I'm also on YouTube. So I put some of my videos, I should put more of my videos on YouTube, but you know, I post some of the videos from Instagram onto YouTube. So you can find me on YouTube as well. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to make sure to add, um, your headache group to my, I have some patient education information on headaches. So I will add that in because it's always great to have good, reliable resources to send patients to, to get, um, to get good quality information. So awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I'd appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And I hope we're able to maybe do this again, um, soon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm actually, I, I thought we were going to talk a little bit more about Sjogren's syndrome, but um, maybe next time we can talk. Um, I actually was thinking like, okay, what am I going to share about Sjogren's? But next time, maybe we can talk about Sjogren's a little bit more. That would be awesome. It. I would really appreciate it. And I'm sure our, all of our listeners would too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Thank Kara. You. It was a pleasure. You too.